You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you, as you turn, if you wouldn't mind standing in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, when we open and read God's word, there's a pattern in the Old Testament in the book of Ezra to stand just in honor and reading it. And it's not like you have to do it. But I also know how long this message might be. So it might be your last chance to stand for a while. And I want the circulation to keep going. No, just kidding. I don't want to scare you today. Hopefully uh, we'll just be here long enough to, uh, to get the point across. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read the first 10 verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, which is Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles." And last of all, he was seen of me also, it's Paul, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. Sorry. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I... But the grace of God which was with me. And today the focus really of of our reading is on verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. And that is the crux of the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. But not just the resurrection. The witnesses to the resurrection. And we'll pray Ask God to bless the reading of his word and get into the preaching this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth today and I pray that you'd help me to convey it. I pray that the reading of your word would be honored and that you would help us to respect your your word as we open it. I pray that all of the distractions that could be out here, uh, that Lord, that you would just help those to be at a minimum. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus and attention on you for the next few moments as you speak to hearts. God, I'm praying that you would speak to a heart this morning. That you would work in someone's life through this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you. You can be seated. There's a man named Josh McDowell, and he is uh, among the greatest Christian thinkers of, of our generation. He's, he's written dozens of books, but his strength is in the field of Christian apologetics. And Christian apologetics is, is not the study of apologizing. Although we probably could use some help apologizing sometimes. But apologetics is basically the study or the reason um, of evidence, presenting clear evidence to truth, to, to doctrine. 
And he's very good at conveying some of those things. His material has been a great help to many Christians when it comes to articulating and defending their faith. Well, someone once asked him why Christianity is so hard to refute. And this was his answer. He said, for a very simple reason, I am not able to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the resurrection really is the linchpin of the gospel. A linchpin is a, a, a locking pin that holds together parts that function as a unit. And the resurrection is that which holds together the whole of the gospel. The resurrection does that for the gospel. If Christ had only been crucified and then buried, our faith has no credibility. Because he died like, like any other religious leader. But Paul himself writes here in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is dependent on the resurrection. And we could read down verses 13 through 18 and see, like in verse 13 he says, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also in vain. And, and we could go on and, and look at Paul's reasons um, why the resurrection is essential to our faith. So it's important that not only that we believe in the resurrection, but that we can defend the resurrection. You know, we live in a post-Christian culture. And a lot of times, you know, people will say we, we have a Christian foundation, and we do. But I believe that in America these days, we could call it post-Christian. We could say that really, in our society, that most people are, are not founded on the Christian faith. They don't think like a Christian. They don't think biblically. Their morals are not determined based on the scripture. We live in a post-Christian culture and it's increasingly skeptical of all things pertaining to Christ. And especially his resurrection. See, in case you weren't aware, people don't rise from the dead very often. It doesn't happen very much. And so in our culture, when people demand evidence and people are skeptical until you prove it right, then it's going to be a tough sell. So I want to approach this morning in a different way than I approach maybe most of my Sunday morning messages. This morning, I'd really almost like to present to you evidence. I'd like to make a case today that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. Now, there's a lot of history and a lot of historical background that most of you know, and I don't have to spend much time uh, telling you this this morning, but I want to start from the beginning and lead to the resurrection. See, Jesus of Nazareth was a Jewish prophet, and he claimed to be the Son of God. And to that, we could say amen, because we believe he was the Son of God. He was prophesied about in Jewish scripture hundreds and even thousands of years before he ever lived on earth. Uh, he was prophesied, in, and if you look at the prophecies of Jesus Christ, you start to realize that not one of the prophecies about him was ever proven wrong. He fulfilled every prophecy. And if that's not enough um, you know, to convince us of our faith, then I don't know what is. That Jesus Christ came and fulfilled all the prophecies about him. He came preaching a message. It didn't sit well with the Jewish leaders of his day. But he came preaching a message against their religious tradition. So they conspired against him and they arrested him. He was judged as a criminal. He was crucified on a cross, which was the worst method of Roman execution. And it was all because he preached the message that went against their religious tradition. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and they hated Christ because uh, his teaching and his preaching basically called them out. But be sure, Jesus Christ, even though he was arrested, and even though he was placed on a cross, even though he was treated like a criminal, he was no criminal. 
See, after his death, he was wrapped in a linen cloth and, and placed in a tomb that was carved out of a rock. And, and according to, to tradition and, and to the practices of the day, they would carve out of a rock and it would form a small cave. And a huge stone was rolled in front of the entrance where Jesus Christ was buried. History suggests that these stones placed in front of the Jewish sepulchers weighed hundreds and often thousands of pounds, up to two tons plus. And it's not hard to believe if you think about a boulder that's six feet in diameter. You know, it wasn't a small thing uh, for someone to move one of those. So that was placed in front of his, his tomb when he was buried. Well, while he was alive, he had claimed that he would rise again after three days. So the Pharisees went to Pilate, which was the Roman governor of those days. Uh, Rome oversaw the, the, the nation of Israel and much of the world in that, in that time period. So they went to, the, to, to Pilate and they said, he has said that he's going to rise again. And we're asking that you would place a guard in front of his tomb. So Pilate, uh, upon hearing this information, he got a, a, a group of Roman soldiers, elite soldiers, and he placed them in front of the tomb so the disciples couldn't come steal the body because the Pharisees said, he said he's going to rise from the dead and we don't want him, his disciples to come and steal the body while he's buried, so would you protect it? So Pilate did. A Roman guard of elite soldiers, they were stationed in front of the tomb, up to 16 of them, and, and at least four of them were always supposed to be awake and on guard. Well, Matthew 27 tells us they were so concerned about Christ's tomb being opened or being vandalized that they sealed it with the Roman seal. You know, you've seen a seal on a letter. Well, a Roman seal was basically the same thing, except it was on the tomb. It was the seal of the Roman government. And if you were to roll the stone away and break the seal, that was most, no small offense to the Roman government. And still, even after all that effort, Jesus Christ, three days later, walked out of the tomb. The tomb was empty. Christ's followers, uh, you know, they claimed that he was raised from the dead. And, and over the next 40 days, he appeared to many of his followers. In our text in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that he was seen by more than 500 witnesses at one time. See, what stands out to me as I read and rehash and, and, and go back over the facts of the resurrection and of this story, what stands out is how many precautions were taken to keep Jesus Christ in the tomb. Yet, the fact is that the most powerful government on earth, the Roman government, couldn't keep one man buried. And it blows my mind to think about that. The strongest government on earth, the one government that if they wanted to could take any city, they could take any country, they had overthrown much of that known world in that time, and yet they couldn't keep one man buried. You know, all these things point to a great difficulty for skeptics and critics, and that is this, we have much more evidence that Jesus Christ rose than the skeptics do that he did not. We have much more evidence that he rose than the skeptics do that he didn't. And there are quite a few theories out there that try to dispute the resurrection. Some say it was the wrong tomb. See, this one says that the ladies and the disciples that came to the tomb in the story we read this morning at the opening of the service, that they went to the wrong tomb and they found it empty. They say, well, that's all it was. They just went to the wrong tomb. Well, what I, what I would say to that is, even if they had gone to the wrong tomb, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, 
would want to make sure that everyone knew they went through the wrong tomb. So the Pharisees and even the Roman government, upon hearing the claim that Christ had risen, they would have gone to the correct tomb, rolled the stone away, and revealed the body. There are some that say, well, Jesus didn't die, he simply swooned, that he fainted. Well, some say Jesus didn't really die, that you know, he was just so exhausted from the loss of blood and, and everyone thought he was dead, but once inside the tomb, he was resuscitated. And the disciples then just thought he rose from the dead. But my question to that is, even the skeptics would have a tough time um, arguing this one, that if Jesus Christ was so faint from being crucified, how in the world would he roll that stone away from the tomb? So Jesus Christ didn't faint, he didn't swoon, and some say that his body was stolen. Well, who would have, could have done that? You're talking about the disciples who were in no position emotionally to have any kind of courage at all, uh, being brave enough to walk around Roman guards, and even if they'd all been sleeping, that they would have been able to roll the, roll the stone away from the tomb without being heard by those 16 centurions? I don't think so. There are some say that it was a hallucination and that everybody around the cross and everybody that watched him die, you know, they'll say that Christ didn't rise. The people who were there, maybe they just kind of magically or who, who just hallucinated and maybe they think they saw him die. Maybe they think they saw him buried and maybe they, they thought that they saw him alive. But either way, there were mass hallucinations or illusions going on at the same time. That's what some people claim. And, and that feels like a stretch. To me, it does, at least. You know, these are numerous attempts. There have been numerous attempts to discredit the resurrection, but there's strong evidence for the resurrection. I want to present to you some facts. Again, I'm trying to make a case this morning, and then we'll, we'll bring it down here in just a moment. Fact number one, the Roman seal was broken. And it doesn't seem like a big deal to you and I. Uh, you know, this isn't one that many people think about. But to break the Roman seal would be to thumb your nose at the Roman Empire. It would be to say that you can't do anything to me. Breaking that seal meant death. History tells us that people re respected and feared the Roman seal. And many people claim that the disciples stole the body of Christ. That he didn't rise. That's what they say. But what I want you to think about today is think about the emotional state of the apostles at this time. Think about the emotional state of the apostles when Christ was resurrected. Can you think of any one of the apostles displaying enough courage during those few days that they would seem like candidates to go to the tomb and break the Roman seal? Like the, the boldest of the apostles, who was the boldest of the apostles in your mind? Who would that be? Probably Peter, right. He was the guy that was always talking before his brain was in motion. You know guys like that? Maybe you are a guy like that? Well, Peter was that guy. And he was always, his, his mouth was moving before his brain was. And he would always say something and he'd always do something bold. And even in the garden, when Jesus Christ was being resurrected, Peter pulled out a sword and he whacked off someone's ear. I mean, he's the boldest of all the apostles. And yet even Peter, when it came down to it, there around a campfire, denied Jesus Christ three times. Mark chapter 15 states that these apostles were so afraid they forsook him and fled. It does not seem, I mean, it's, the seal was broken. So someone had to be brave enough to go around those guards 
and break that Roman seal? And do you picture any of those apostles that forsook Jesus and fled when he was arrested having the courage to do so? I don't think so. Fact number two, the great stone was moved. And on the Sunday morning when Christ's disciples came to the tomb, the one thing everyone noticed first was that the stone was taken away from the front of the tomb. Everyone saw it. This was no small rock. Mark 16 says it was very great. So who do you suppose did that? Or in an Oklahoma term, since I just moved there, or moved here from there, who do you reckon moved that stone? Did the disciples sneak in while a guard of over a dozen Roman soldiers slept right next to the entrance? Did they tiptoe around while rolling away a stone that weighed more than a ton and then steal Christ's body without waking up the soldiers? It's unlikely. Fact number three, the tomb was empty. After the resurrection and ascension of Christ to heaven, his disciples preached that he rose from the dead. And they preached it with boldness and they preached it right there in Jerusalem where everything took place. They didn't go to some faraway city. And this is important. I want you to think about this. They were in the same neighborhood. They were preaching that Christ rose in the very neighborhood where he had been buried. So no matter what the critics say, the tomb was empty. If it had not been empty, they wouldn't have had the credibility to preach it to the Jews who could literally... So here, I want you to envision this. So if I'm an apostle after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and I'm standing here and I'm saying, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the tomb is empty. All you would have to do sitting here hearing me say that would be like, huh, I'm going to go check it out. All they had to do was walk to the tomb. And they could see that it was empty. It's one thing for me to make a claim about something that you could never prove. But if I was to say, yeah, that house right over here, on Line Drive, if you live on Line Drive, forgive me for using this as an illustration. That house over there on Line Drive burned down. And I could stand up here and say it all, all day, and, but I'd have to be bold to say it right here if it didn't really happen. Because all you'd have to do is walk over to one of those windows and look out and say, it's still standing. So for the apostles to say the tomb is empty, right there in Jerusalem, gave credence and credit and credibility to what they were preaching. See, Paul Altheus, he was a German theologian, he stated that the resurrection could have not been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. Fact number four, Jesus had appearances that were confirmed. And this is leading to the point I'm trying to make this morning. See, the New Testament gives over ten accounts of Jesus Christ appearing to people after the resurrection. It gives great credibility to the claim that he rose when you consider that the writers of the four gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote their accounts when the eyewitnesses were still alive. They were writing these books when people that had experienced could still were around. They could, they could literally prove or disprove it. The gospels were written and probably read by the same people who had seen Jesus Christ resurrected. And you have to think that the reports were accurate because if they aren't, the eyewitnesses would have said, that's not how it went down. They would have said, I didn't see that. What are you talking about? What are you writing about? The people who saw Christ raised could read what the Gospels uh, were writing or were, were, were saying. If they were lying, someone would have said, that's not true. And that leads us to the point 
that I want to focus on this morning, and that is that Christ's resurrection was confirmed by many witnesses. See, 1 Corinthians, that's where our text comes into play. Look at verse 3. It says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now, we have all, probably anybody who's been raised in church, that you've been taught that the gospel is the death, the, the, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. Verse 3 sums that up beautifully. He's talking about Jesus Christ being, being crucified for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. There's the gospel. But what I want you to notice is at the end of verse 4, it's not a period. It's a colon. And for those of you like me who have not been in English very long, I don't know much about English anymore. I'm not very good at it. But I can say that I do know that if you see a period, it means that's the end of the thought. But if you see something like a colon, then there's a connection between what was just said and what is coming next. And that's what happens here. See, Paul introduces the gospel. He hits the three main points in three, in three and four. Then he continues the thought in verses five and six. It says, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under this present but some are falling asleep. You see, in Paul's thought processes, the, the witnesses to the gospel were as much a part of the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection. See, the witnesses were significant because they were the proof. Paul wasn't just writing about something he wanted everybody to believe. He wasn't just writing something that he came up with out of, out of thin air. He had proof, and the proof was that there were witnesses to the fact that Jesus Christ rose. He wasn't asking anybody to take his word for it. He wasn't saying, believe me because I'm saying this. No, he's presenting evidence, strong evidence to prove that Christ rose from the dead. See, the gospel is not just some historical anecdote. It's not just a story that's been passed along from generation to generation that, you know, hey, yeah, this is a story. It, it may be real. Oral tradition just passes it along. No, the gospel is verified events. These are verified in history. They're verified by witnesses. Folks, let me just say this morning, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It really happened. And there are witnesses to it. 500 as a matter of fact. See, again, in verse 5, Paul says, and that he was seen of Cephas. That's Peter. And that was significant because Peter was that, was that early church leader there in Jerusalem. So he said he was seen of Cephas, then he was seen of the twelve, which were those apostles. And then in verse 6, he was seen of above 500 at one time, most of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this letter to, to the Corinthians. See, this connects to the earlier point. But Paul is emphasizing the fact that at the time where he wrote 1 Corinthians, you could go find a bunch of people that had seen Christ alive with their own two eyes. You could go to them and question them about it. They could verify it. And Dr. Edwin Yamauchi, he's an associate professor of history at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. So I'm not quoting a theologian this morning. I'm not quoting a commentator. I'm quoting a secular, uh, a secular professor at a university. He said this, 
What gives a special authority to the list of witnesses as historical evidence is the, rever- is the reference to most of the 500 brethren being still alive. You see, St. Paul, in effect, is saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. See, such a statement in an admittedly genuine letter written 30 years, within 30 years of the event is almost as strong evidence as one could hope to get for something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago. That's a secular historian. That's a secular professor at a secular university. He has no interest in promoting or advancing the gospel. He's simply saying the evidence that Paul is saying that I wrote this while most of the witnesses were still alive is as strong as you could hope for. 500 first-hand witnesses would make for an extremely solid case in a courtroom setting. And that's what Paul is trying to get across today. And, and you, you have a lot of people that say, well, you know, these witnesses were all his friends. All these witnesses were people he knew. And, you know, if Christ only appeared to people he knew, you know, Peter, the apostles, the 500 brethren, James, his own brother, James, you know, they, they're saying, if that's all he appeared to, then how do we know it's credible? You know, they try to discredit the witnesses because they were all followers. And, they, and I want you to understand, too, that, that in history, there were no hostile witnesses. There weren't those coming around saying, he didn't rise, and here's the proof that I have. Everyone was a friendly witness, and the skeptics try to say that this is a reason that you can't put credibility to the witnesses because they all knew Jesus Christ. But appearing to people that Christ actually knew, in my mind, actually makes a stronger case. Because the people that knew him and saw him could literally verify, oh yeah, it's him. See, if he'd only appeared to a bunch of non-believers that didn't know him all that well, their testimony would not be certain. Because if they didn't know him up close, they wouldn't be able to say, yeah, I absolutely know that's Jesus Christ. The fact that he has friendly witnesses, the fact that they were his followers, the fact that they were his friends, the fact that they knew him better than anyone else credits their testimony because if they didn't know him, they couldn't say, oh yeah, it's him. Second, he did appear to hostile witnesses. See, would you have considered a man named Saul of Tarsus a friend of Christ when he saw Jesus on the Damascus road? No way. See, he hated Christ. He killed his followers. But when he met Christ on that road alive, it changed him from a foe to a follower. See, not to speculate too much, but who knows if the same happened for the other, the other 500. Maybe some of them weren't convinced until they saw Christ alive, and then they converted. It could be that every person that Christ appeared to after he rose either already was or became a follower. It doesn't say in the scripture, but that's exactly what happened to Paul, so you'd have to think that it could happen to other people too. Hostile witnesses are not Friends, today, once someone sees Christ alive, it changes everything. That's the power of the resurrection. Coming back from the dead sounds crazy. It seems hard to believe. And I I know it doesn't make sense to our logic, but the Son of God, Jesus Christ, died, he was buried, and he supernaturally rose from the dead. I mean, if you don't believe it, you have to explain a lot away. Because the evidence is strong 
See, much of what we looked at this morning is a logical attempt to, attempt to answer the criticisms. But when you finally do believe it, when it does turn from theory to reality, it can't help but change your life. And there's a room full of people here today that have experienced, and I hope they'll agree with me verbally, there's a room of people here today that have experienced the power of the resurrection in their own lives. See, if you've ever come to terms with who you are and who he is, and that there's no hope for you to get to where he is except for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then receiving that as your only hope for salvation, the resurrection has done its work in your life. You're a partaker of the resurrection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's changed your life. Because if he can conquer death, that changes everything. So when you add up the internal biblical evidence combined with the external evidence, and I've just given you logic today, some history too, but when you start to add all of these things up, we have no reason to lack confidence that Christ raised from the dead. None. And if I could say it boldly today, he rose from the dead. And the people with a lot of explaining to do are the ones who dispute all the evidence and they try to deny the book and, and all the witnesses that saw him alive. They're the ones that have a lot of explaining to do. But if you're open to the concept, because I've presented logic this morning and some history, if you're open to that thought today, let me just tell you this phrase, and I want you to remember this one. If Christ is credible enough to be alive then he is credible enough to be obeyed. If he's credible enough to be alive, then you have an obligation to obey. See, if, if he's alive, then everything he says is true. If he's alive, then his word is verified. You can't ignore it. If he's alive, then heaven is real. I mean, there is a place the Bible talks about called heaven. It's a place that God's people get to spend eternity with God forever in. And the Bible can deliver on its many wonderful promises if Christ is alive. And one of the finest is that we have a future in heaven. See, if he's alive, the Bible's full of great promises like heaven. But it's also full of sobering realities. Because if Christ is alive today, then heaven is real, but hell is too. See, there's a place that those who reject the gospel of Christ will spend eternity separated from God in. If he's alive and the Bible is true, then you're a sinner. Because the Bible says it in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Listen, if, if Jesus Christ is alive, then what he says is true. And you and I are sinners. We've all broken God's law. We stand guilty before God. And we deserve to be eternally separated from him in eternity in a place called hell. If the Bible's true, then everything that he says about our future, if we've not received Christ, is true. If the Bible is true, then Romans 6.23 is true when it says, for the wages of sin is death. And because I'm a sinner, then I deserve to be separated from God by death and not just dying, but eternally being separated from him. If Jesus Christ is alive, then that verse is true. And friends, today, if he's alive, then you're a sinner and you deserve to be separated from God for eternity. 
And I'm not trying to, to be too sobering. And I'm not trying to, to make you feel bad about yourself today. I'm simply telling you what the Bible says. If Christ is alive, then what the Bible says in true, is true. And if you're a sinner, then you deserve to pay for your sins. If he's alive, then what the Bible says about God is true. And he's holy. Amen. See, the presence of sin cannot exist in the presence of God. It's something must be done with your sin if you want to spend eternity with God in heaven. He's holy. He can't be around sin. He can't entertain the thought. He can't be in the presence. If he's alive, friend, and the Bible is true, here's where the good news comes in. Because if he's alive, then you're a sinner and you deserve to be separated from God in a place called hell. And there's no way for you to get there on your own. Jesus Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If all of these things are true and I stopped here today and I prayed and dismissed the room, then you would leave feeling hopeless. But if the Bible is true because he's alive, then there's another verse, Romans 5.8. And it says, but God commendeth his love toward us, or he proved his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If he's alive, you are a sinner, because the Bible's true. If he's alive, then you deserve to be separated from God forever. But if he's alive, here's the good news. Remember the gospel? It means good news. Here's the good news. But he, he was buried and he raised again, giving you victory over sin. He came to die in your place for your sins. And all you have to do, if the Bible's true, then Romans 10, 13 is, is true. That says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then that's true too. And John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If Jesus Christ is alive, that verse is true too. And this morning, yes, even though you're a sinner, and even though you've broken God's law, and even though you deserve to spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in your place and to pay for your sins. And friends, today, if he's alive, you can spend eternity in heaven with God forever because of the payment on the cross. And I'm sorry to get excited about it, but the resurrection has changed my life too. And just because I stand here as a sinner just like you, one time as a nine-year-old boy, just like Brother Spencer, as a nine-year-old boy, I saw my sin for what it is. And I knew that if I died that day, I'd spend eternity in hell separated from God. But somebody told me the good news of the gospel. And they said, yes, you're a sinner. And yes, you deserve to be separated from God. But Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins. And he didn't just die. He wasn't just buried. He rose again the third day. Amen. And the gospel of Christ gives you victory over sin where you are hopeless to do anything about it on your own. If he's alive, then everything the Bible says is true. And I can believe it. If he's alive, you have to come face to face with a decision this morning. And I know I've been passionate about it today. But you stand in limbo. You stand on the edge of a precipice. 
And if you take the wrong step, you're in eternity. And if Christ is alive, then you have to deal with the resurrection. You have to come face to face with it. If it happened, then the Bible is true and you have to make a choice today. And some in here have decided it's not true. And you're skeptical or you just find it hard to believe or you don't want to submit. And I understand it. It maybe it really doesn't line up with human logic. But that's where faith steps in. You see, you, you accept the evidence that's there by faith. Faith, listen, faith is not blindly leaping. There's evidence that he rose. Faith is accepting the evidence that's there and placing your trust in it. And I know faith is hard to come by in this culture, in this world today, but let me just ask you this question. Is there a possibility that the resurrection happened? Is it possible that it happened and that it's true? If there's a possibility, then you have the responsibility right now in this moment to make the decision today. You have to take it seriously. Don't dismiss it because you find it difficult I mean, it could be that it's true. There's more evidence that it's true than it's not. And honestly, there's, you know, you, are you willing to risk your eternity, heaven or hell, simply because you don't want to believe the facts? The Roman seal was broken. The great stone was moved. The tomb was empty. Jesus Christ had confirmed appearances and at least 500 witnesses at once saw him alive. His resurrection provides victory over your sin. If you believe it today, you can leave this room, this building, knowing that his life can give you eternal life. But if you reject it, you run the risk of being wrong. If he's alive and you don't believe it, then you will leave this building today bearing still the guilt of your sin. And if you die without placing your faith in Christ, you'll spend eternity apart from him. Why risk it? Follow the evidence. Believe the evidence. If he's alive, everything he said was true. And if, he's a, if he is credible enough to be alive then he's credible enough to be obeyed. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He has already gained victory over your sin. And today is your day. April 21st, 2019. Why don't you just say, I believe he's alive. And if he's alive, then everything he says is true. And I have come face to face with the decision. I better make it. I choose Jesus Christ. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.